Justice Tech Pros here. I hope everyone had an enjoyable holiday. A couple items before we get into today's episode. I want to first thank our first 100 subscribers for tuning in. And uh, I want to thank the supporters who helped us get to that number. Ruckus Radio. And also a few uh, people on Facebook spreading the word and reposting things. So everyone who likes the channel and enjoys the content. I just want to thank for the support, and uh, hopefully what I'm putting out there is relating to some people, and it makes sense. And with that said, I'm hoping it could start changing the uh, dynamic of what's going on within the justice system, even if it's only on a small level to start. And God willing, it could parlay and grow, and people could start having different ideas and views, and potentially prevent in some kind of way, shape, or form innocent people from getting found guilty, which is unfortunately way more common than it should be. And today's discussion, I don't really have a specific topic, a couple things that were just, you know, on my mind that I'll probably jump around, and like I said, as as this develops, it's organic And it's just going to kind of go with any topic that I want to dissect or or maybe keeps going if I've already covered it previously and I want to expand on it. It's just the way the podcast is going to turn out. I am going to have certain uh, guests on the show for different things that could help enlighten listeners and expand their knowledge base and give them a good understanding on different topics. Also, as I explained, I'm just going to coordinate even some uh, listener experiences, some unfortunate experiences that may also uh, help enlighten the listeners to what is really taking place and personalize it a bit so people can put a voice to these different unfortunate circumstances that happen and they could hear how it affects Uh, common people and how it's a reality and it's not just people saying oh things are unjust and this isn't right and that's not right it's actually truly affecting people's lives and happening innocent people are being found guilty and that's just uh, a reality of of what's going on and one of the um, items that always pops in my head that I think has a big impact when trial starts and the defense team is preparing their defense case. I believe it's very important to look at what the government tends to, what the state tends to focus on and what they're going to introduce expert-wise. And you got to make certain that the defense has a rebuttal expert. Because for every expert who could tell you something, There's always another expert on the other side who could tell you why that something could be inaccurate or why that topic could have flaws, whether it's DNA, whether it's cell site, linguistics, forensics, whatever the area of expertise may be that the government's looking to introduce. It's very important. It's vital, in my opinion, that the the defense prepares for that and has a rebuttal expert that could shed light on the opposition and and show how the expert that the government is going to be using can be wrong 
and how there are items that could affect whatever they're testifying to, to explain how there are flaws. Because I, I do notice when the government's experts come on, the way they're talking is as if everything is matter of fact and there's no room for error. And there has not been a science yet that I've come across where there is room for error, whether it's on the testing level, whether it's environmental aspects that could affect the readings, whether it's on the weather that could affect certain things, whether it's on transfer, whether it's on how the samples are handled. There's many, many ways that results could be impacted. And it's very important for the defense to expose those ways and to educate the jurors. Because if you only have the government bringing in those experts and the jurors are only seeing one side, that's a dangerous seed to plant in their head. If nothing rebuttals that on the expert level, of course the lawyer could rebuttal that. But look at it from the juror's point of view. You have an expert where this is all they do. Their field is this one specialty area, and the government's bringing them in to explain their position on that one area. Now, if the lawyer, even if they're knowledgeable, and they're able to counter it, and they're able to cross-examine it and poke some holes in it, it's nowhere near as credible as bringing somebody with just as high, if not higher, credentials on the opposite side of the fence to counteract the damage that the government may have done or the state may have done with their expert testimony. And I just feel no matter what it is, you got to really focus on that early and look to get somebody on board who's going to be ready to testify, knows the case, knows what they're looking to focus on, and is able to give their opposition to that and give their side of how it could help your defense, not hurt your defense. And I'm going to give an example of of why it is important to really jump into the science behind some of these cases. Uh, There was an article I was reading from techdirt.com, and the title of the article is Federal Court Says Touch DNA Analysis is Mostly Guesswork That Can't Be Used as Evidence. So now that they're starting to... I don't want to go into the the whole article, but the gist of it is they're starting to uncover how specifically touch DNA is mostly guesswork. Now, right away, as you know, the general public, they hear DNA and they get captivated and they tend to think all the results are 100% accurate all of the time. And DNA is, I mean, it you know, DNA evidence is... But what they need to understand is how many things could affect it. And I'm going to just read the first paragraph to give you an idea of where the article is going. DNA was supposed to be the gold standard of criminal evidence, and it can be, but only under very specific circumstances, rarely found in the messy world of crime scenes. DNA evidence is easily contaminated by the people handling the evidence, not to mention anyone else who's been at the crime scene. This has resulted in law enforcement agencies spending years chasing phantom criminals, only to find out the DNA investigators kept finding that crime scenes came from other officers, first responders, 
or even the person packing their DNA kits back at the manufacturers. Now, that alone is, is a little frightening. That, that tells me, you know, if the DNA evidence is one of the strong points of a case, they better make sure that that DNA evidence is solid. And the way to explain whether it is solid or isn't is by bringing in an expert witness for the defense side. I would want my witness to analyze the case, analyze the test taken, and find out if they're legitimate, what kind of variables could exist. And I notice far too often the defense doesn't call those experts when it relates to their defendant. These experts have to be called. And if you find yourself in that situation, you really have to fight for that. And you have to make sure that the defense calls them. And unfortunately, I know, you know, a lot of this boils down to money and they are expensive. But when your life's on the line, you got to try to do whatever you can. And if you have court appointed, they do have a process where you get approval for the for the experts. So it's just really important to fight for these things and to to make sure to introduce these things when they affect part of the indictment or counts in the indictment that you're charged with. Because the jurors are influenced by experts. When they get up there and they testify, they are influenced by that. And when the experts are speaking so matter-of-factly and there's nobody with equal or higher credentials to counteract that, you could pretty much guarantee they're going to believe whatever part of the trial required an expert testimony, they're going to kind of side with that aspect of it. So if DNA or forensic or cell site affects your case, it's very important that you have another side to that story that is on the expert level and not just the defense team crossing on those issues. And what happens is a lot of the times the prosecution in summation or in their closing will cite a lot of those stats or a lot of the information given by their experts which help lead to the conviction. And when you look up uh, how many uh, false convictions or convictions that were overturned based on experts being involved, or obviously informants lying. It's frightening the amount of people that are in jail that are innocent that we know about, whereas they found out about and then exonerated them and overturned the convictions. And, you know, um, that's where it all plays into the jury education and the jury knowledge base building and enhancing. And that's what got me trying to get this podcast out there. Uh, As I said in another podcast, this is a different element of my business. My my business is more uh, supporting counsel and the defense, but I wanted to appeal to the public because what I was seeing was a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge, and a lack of jurors taking their job seriously and not understanding what was required of them. And this was the one small step that I wanted to try to take to potentially gradually change that, you know, turn that, turn that page, maybe where it would be something down the road 
where you make a difference and you make some kind of impact and a, a listener one day serves on the jury and remembers one or two discussions or topics that I covered that helps clear an innocent person. And if that happens, you know, it's all worth it. But I, I would want to do that on a, on a bigger scale, I think, on a generational scale. We need more intelligent jurors, more coherent jurors, jurors who understand the difference between saying somebody's innocent and not guilty. And just because you may not think somebody's innocent, that's not what you're charged with. You have to find out if you believe they're just not guilty based on having reasonable doubt. And, you know, the juror's not even being asked to find somebody innocent. They have to remember they're being asked to find somebody not guilty. And that's a smaller threshold you have to meet to find somebody not guilty. The charges, as a jury, you have to basically say the government of the state did not prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. Therefore, the defendant's not guilty. And this goes back to prior episodes that are carrying into one another where the juror's not really grasping the whole concept and what they're there to do. And that's why we're having so many of these false convictions where innocent people are being convicted. It's just a fact. It's happening. And it's one big cycle. It's a lot of factors that affect that. And a little one, another one I touched on previously, which I was reading another paper that was written on the topic, is when certain um, evidence or, or rules apply, whereas items are limited and aren't allowed to get into the case that could help the defendant. And when you think about that, it doesn't make sense. You would figure if you're defending your client, any factual information that could help them should be allowed in. And there's a paper you could look up, and the title of it is, Do Exclusionary Rules Convict the Innocent? And it's from, uh, there's different universities involved, the University of Illinois and the University of Chicago, and it was written in August of 2011. And I'm going to read a little bit of the abstract, where rules excluding various kinds of evidence from criminal trials play a prominent role in criminal procedure and have generated considerable controversy. In this paper, we address the general topic of excluding factual relevant evidence, that is, the kind of evidence that would rationally influence the jury's verdict if it was admitted. Now think about that. There's evidence being excluded from being allowed in the trial that could save somebody's life and yet it's not being allowed in. That alone, you would figure breaches some kind of constitutional right and yet it doesn't. These are how things play out. And the jury on that side, I could understand, I don't blame them for that part because they don't even know this stuff exists. And that's why This podcast and things like it are so important because you're going to have to start keeping those things in back of your head when you serve on the jury. You're going to have to start realizing that there may be some things you don't account for. And honestly, I don't even know what the answer is to that because that's not fair to put that on a juror and that's not realistic for them to account for something that they don't even know is out there. So this is more of just 
a situation where I'm just confused by it and I don't know how to solve that. That's that's on the court level. Where where you have evidence that could help your client fighting for their life and yet the court won't allow it in. And that's a major problem. And I'm sure the defense fights to get it in. As I've witnessed firsthand, we fought to get certain things in and weren't allowed. But when you see papers being written about it, And articles being written about it, it's a big problem. It isn't an isolated issue. And yet it doesn't get resolved. It just keeps going on and on. And that's the issue. How do these things get resolved? We know the problem, but what's the solution? And in simplest terms, the only solution on my level that I could do is to talk about these things and dissect these things to hope that listeners could spread the word and enhance and you know, that's the, the great thing about the internet. This would be this is nationwide. There's people all over listening to it. And, you know, you just got to hope that that's where it starts. That's where the tide starts to change on this type of level. Because it's not changing on the court level. This is going on and on. People are going to trial. Evidence to help them is not getting admitted. Innocent people are getting convicted. Those are the facts. And that was one of the obstacles... We went through recently at a trial is how to get certain things in. And that that's a an odd statement to make. You have evidence that could help you and you have to come up with ways to get it in where the judge will allow it to get in. And we tried raising a few things and it wasn't allowed to, you know, in, wasn't allowed admittance. And yet it's hard to make peace with that and wrap your head around that. You have something that could help, something that could enlighten the juror. And the judge has the power to not let you use it. One would figure if you have something that could help your defense, that is legitimate and is accurate, you would automatically get to use it and bring it up. And that's not the way it works. It has to be put in. And it has to be allowed in. And that's a, that's a troubling obstacle to have to face when one is fighting for their life. And all these little factors add up where, you know, if you have a certain judge on the case that isn't a fair judge and isn't an impartial judge, they could direct things to go the way that they kind of want if they do have an agenda. They have the power to direct it the way they would want it to play out. And the jury doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes. So for that part, I don't put it on the jury as far as that aspect. But the problem is they need to realize the whole picture. And they just need to give, follow the direction, I should say, and follow the actual instruction. And that's why in theory and in the books and in in papers and in school... Where it says, you know, you're innocent to proven guilty, the burden's on the government. That's why it's so it's written down that way, because it should be. Because it's so it should be such a high threshold for them to prove you're guilty. Whereas they should just have everything in order and they should have the case airtight and they should have the facts in order. But it's not that high of a threshold to meet. It's not that high, hard of a target for them to aim at, 
to get their conviction the way it actually plays out in real court because of the different tactics that take place and because of the roles that the judge has if you have a judge that's not fair and is not impartial it could have a devastating effect on the verdict the six most um, common causes for a wrongful conviction and this comes from the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Product Project, sorry. And it's the six most common causes for a wrongful conviction. They have eyewitness misidentification, unreliable or improper forensic science, which goes back to what I was saying earlier about the experts, false confessions, informant testimony, government misconduct, and inadequate defense. Those are the six most common where they wound up getting somebody exonerated because those factors took place. So going into a case, those are the things you have to focus on. And I I personally just feel that the expert, if you're facing an expert, that has one of the biggest impacts on the jury. So you have to make sure you have your opposing expert ready to go. The informants we we talked about, jurors are just believing lying informants. And a lot of that also has to do with what is being allowed in. You know, as we kicked around in prior episodes, if you can't talk about an informant's history and their character, how can you put them in front of a juror? How can you have a jury of 12 Decide how trustworthy this person is if they know nothing about them. If they don't know the misdeeds they've done. If they don't know the horrible acts they've committed. I I don't care how they try to paint that picture where they'll try to say, well, it has nothing to do with credibility. I don't buy that. Character is credibility. If you have a poor character and you, you, you have no moral compass and you're ethically defunct and morally crippled how can you be a credible witness how can you say well he could still tell the truth I know they try to separate those things in the court of law and make them like two entirely different things but they're really not in society they're really not if you're dealing with a person like that with a person who who's done these heinous things and Would you believe a word that came out of their mouth? Just regular, whether in business or in the... Business is actually a good example of that. Would you ever do business with somebody with that kind of moral character? Nonetheless, listen to what they have to tell you. Or or rely on what they're telling you to condemn somebody else. The fact is, the two go hand in hand. Your character and your ability to tell the truth go hand in hand. And that's one topic that I'll just disagree adamantly on with the courts. Because you can't tell me somebody does such horrible and heinous things, but yet it doesn't hinder their ability to tell the truth. It does. Because if they don't have the conscience to do the right thing on a moral level, why would I think they have the conscience to tell me the truth? I just link those two together and I think it's unfair and unjust not to allow the defense to talk about that 
and not to go into their character. Here's an idea, if you're the government. Don't get an informant that is such a horrible person. Don't have an informant that is just so terrible and does all these horrible things. And is always lying, and they're always, you're always tripping them up, and, they, and they're always committing crimes, even after they're, they're cooperating. How about walk away from that informant? If you have a legitimate witness, that's different. If somebody's a witness, I've, you know, as I explained, my personal feelings have nothing to do with that. I'm just talking legitimately. If they're a witness, if they're an informant, all you want them to do then, tell the truth. If that's what you're going to do, and you decide to go down that path, and and you could look in the mirror and you could be fine with that, that's on you, at least tell the truth. And if you're not telling the truth, it all goes back to your character. and all goes back to how you conducted yourself prior to you d- deciding to become an informant. And that's where I have a problem, where they're taking these informants of such a sub-level, sub-human level, And they're asking a jury to believe every word out of their mouth. They're telling them, no, separate, separate the fact that they're such a terrible person and they lied in the past and they committed crimes in the past, but now we want you to believe them. That has no bearing on them telling the truth. To me, that almost seems like you're trying to make the jury like they're a bunch of idiots. Because in my opinion, only an idiot would not look at that statement and say, are, are you crazy? They're, they're intertwined. Somebody of such a poor moral character will have the ability, would have no problem lying to me. I can't believe a word they say. To me, they're intertwined. And I just won't see that distinction. And that's where it gets dangerous because you could have a, a very weak case become strong based on the rulings and based on how these certain things play out. And what I'm trying to say by that is if you have a weak case in the sense that you have really substandard informants, informants who really are not in the first person, they don't know directly about events, they're just giving hearsay, then you have evidence uh, by experts that isn't being challenged, Then you have court rulings not allowing things in that could help the defense. Then, which I've seen play out, unfortunately, you have a court ruling where you prep your case. The court ruled one way. And then days before you're about to begin your case, the court changes its mind and lets that prior ruling back in. Which, of course, it was a ruling that helps the government, not helps the defense. So when you have these things that affect the case, all these elements where it starts off, where they have a weak case because the evidence isn't there, the informants aren't there because none of them are are in the first, they're not directly related, they're all giving hearsay of hearsay. But that that changes, the tide kind of changes as you get closer to trial where you see rulings happening, you see you're being limited on what you're allowed to ask, what you're allowed to cross on. So now where they have a weak case when you go by the facts and the evidence, they're changing that. They're they're actually developing it 
they're making it a strong case because they have all the time to prepare. They're able to analyze where they're weak and they're able to get the rulings in their favor to then turn it around and make it a strong case. And that's a really troublesome obstacle to have to be faced with. You know you have an innocent client. You know you're going to defend that client. And now you're being handcuffed on how you could defend that client. Now you're being told evidence that could help you is not being allowed in. Cross-examinations of witnesses that could help you is not going to be allowed. Uh, rulings that were in your favor are now no longer in your favor. All these items start to build up. And it's like building a wall. And the wall's getting higher and higher. And then eventually you can't get over it or around it. Because they're they're almost putting blindfolds over the jury and earplugs in their ears. When the defense goes. And then when the prosecution gets up, those blindfolds come off and the earplugs come out. That's pretty much what it's like. They're limiting everything the defense could do. And they're allowing pretty much all that the prosecution wants to do. And I I touched on it before where they even went so far in this last case, which was astounding to me, of letting a, a transcript in that was clearly wrong. It was clearly wrong. But it was still allowed in with their... You know, and they hand their transcript to the jury, and that's another thing. They tell the jury, the jury's instructed that the transcript's an aid. That's not the evidence. You know, just listen to the evidence. The audio's the evidence. Now, if the audio's impossible to hear, that it's really low, how do you think the jury's going to decipher what's on the audio? What do you think they're going to look at? They're going to read the transcript in front of them. So if the transcript's wrong, it doesn't matter what's on the audio, because Jurors, unfortunately, what they should do is say, well, I can't read the, I can't hear the audio, so the whole thing goes out the window. I'm not even entertaining it. But you could tell they're not doing that by the results. They're reading what's on the transcripts. And if the transcript's inaccurate, I don't know how that's allowed in. Things need to really start changing where jurors have to get educated and they have to start opening their minds up and realizing what's taking place right in front of them. And they have to understand how a courtroom's being run and how things are being impacted and how the defense is being silenced. You know, and I know it's it's hard to see through all that. But that's the only way to, to start making a change. Another prime example which really affects testimony is they say you're not allowed to have hearsay with the hearsay rule. And the hearsay rule, I'm going to give you the definition of it. Hearsay is any information gathered by one person from another person who has first-hand knowledge of the information. This information may involve a condition, event, or object of which the person gathering the information has no first-hand knowledge. In other words, the person did not have any direct or personal experience and cannot testify in court about it. Information that is secondhand is typically not admissible in court unless it falls under specific exceptions. So now, this last case, we had everything was hearsay. But now they have 26 exceptions to the hearsay law. 
Now, regardless, what those 26 exceptions basically allow them to do is get it in. So they use the the 26 exceptions. They'll go through those exceptions, and then they'll get in the hearsay. So in one breath, they're giving it to you where they're saying hearsay is not allowed. But in the next, they're taking it away by saying it's going to meet one of the 26 exceptions. And trust me, even when it doesn't meet one of those exceptions, it gets let in. They find it under one of the exceptions. It could be so loosely based on one of those exceptions, but they miraculously find their their way in, and now you're faced with hearsay testimony against you. And you have when you have twice removed hearsay, I don't understand that one, where you have the person testifying that says they never met the defendant, don't know the defendant, didn't hear what they're going to testify about directly from the defendant. They heard it from somebody who supposedly heard it from the defendant, and that's their evidence. Now, if that isn't hearsay, I don't know what is, but then what do they do? They're clever. They have these 26 exceptions to hearsay, which I'm sure a lot of the public don't even know that there's these exceptions to the hearsay. So now they'll go down these 26 exceptions and they'll argue to the judge of why these hearsay statements should be allowed in under one of these 26 exceptions. And when you read the exceptions, a lot of times the hearsay doesn't fit any of them, but it's at the judge's discretion. And if she says it fits one of them, guess what? It's in. It fits one of them. So it's every time there's a law that could help you or or seems clear cut, somehow there's a way around it where then it could hurt you. So where one would think as well, I can't really get hurt. This is hearsay. This is somebody talking about something. It shouldn't. It's not getting in. Well, it is getting in. And they're going to say it fits an exception to the rule of hearsay. Therefore, it's allowed in. So we're going to find one of these 26 exceptions, we're going to plug it in, we're going to argue it, and then we're going to get it in. Again, another item where there's textbook law, and then there's reality. Where you're not allowed hearsay, but it gets in. And that's just the way it plays out over and over again. And what's scary about that, when you think about it, is if you just happen to be friends with somebody who, or you think they're your friend, and let's say they don't like you, they could pretty much make up whatever they want about you, tell it to somebody else who then becomes an informant, and you could be indicted based on what that informant says. So let's say this person doesn't like you, and they're just telling this informant all kinds of nonsense about you that's not true at all. The informant then goes and says, oh, I heard from so-and-so that this person is doing X, Y, and Z. Now you get indicted. How scary is that when you think about it? So if you don't, if somebody doesn't like you and they go and just want to go, you know, vent to somebody else and badmouth you and make up things about you, make up stories about you, whatever. I'm just using an example. And this isn't a far-fetched example. This plays out. And they're just saying things that aren't true about you. And now this informant uses that information to get you in trouble. It holds weight. It holds water. 
And you'll now have a problem and get indicted based on that. And especially if you're a target or somebody who the government may want to go after or has a belief that you're, you're guilty of something, but they, they have no way of proving it or whatever it may be. It all goes back to the whole target thing. If they target you for any reason at all, you're going to have a problem because they're going to make the facts, quote unquote, facts work to their advantage. So if they want to get you, they're going to do everything in their power to get you. And as we discussed in the grand jury, they'll get the grand jury indictment. You can indict a a ham sandwich, so they're going to get that. Then they're going to get the informants to say what they want about you, even if it's hearsay, because it'll be allowed back in under the exceptions to the hearsay. And now all these little things start stacking up to build a case. Meanwhile, in reality, none of it is legitimate evidence. None of it. But they're stacking it all up together because the theory in their minds is the more we have, the more mud we throw against the wall, something's going to stick. And unfortunately, that plays out. And that has played out. You have uneducated jurors, inexperienced jurors, buying into this. You have things, you're, you're being handcuffed on what you're allowed into the court, what you're allowed to defend against, what you're allowed to argue, what you're allowed to cross on. All these things are playing in. You're you're guilty before you're proven innocent. And now you get into this courtroom. And the jury's getting these instructions. They're getting now, which uh, in this last case, they were hit with this Pinkerton charge, which is Pinkerton liability, which is basically saying if you feel you don't even have to have knowledge or participation They use a term, if an action was foreseeable by the defendant, foreseeable, that somebody within the same conspiracy was going to do something, if it was foreseeable, you're then liable. Think about how great of a term, how vast of a term foreseeable could be, how many ways that could be interpreted. That is an undefinable term. In my opinion, you could say anything is foreseeable. If you know how to speak properly and how to analyze things and play with words and and redirect and misdirect, you could take that term foreseeable and make it encompass anything. You could make anyone capable of foreseeing any act with any friend or any person they're involved with. That's a dangerous, dangerous liability charge, this Pinkerton. And they use it, in my opinion, when they know they don't have evidence on somebody and they know they have a weak case, they then introduce that, this Pinkerton liability, to tie it up, to almost solidify it with the jury so the jury could hang their hat on that. So the jury could go back and say, well, there's no evidence on this person. They have no firsthand knowledge. They have no participation. But they have this Pinkerton liability, which basically says he or she could have foreseen this action, could have foreseen this conspiracy happen. And 
when they use that, it's it's very, very hard to beat that terminology. And the problem is the jury doesn't recognize they don't have to use that. That's not a liability that you have to use. And if you have common sense, you shouldn't use that. Because you should not be finding people guilty for something that they have no knowledge of, no participation of. And that's separate and apart from the whole reasonable doubt argument. These are all things that should be discussed and mitigated and talked about in the deliberation room. You have to go by each defendant and you should say, where's the reasonable doubt on defendant A, on B, on C, on D, on E, or as many as there are. And if there's reasonable doubt on any of them, it's a not guilty verdict. And remember, as I said earlier, you're not saying whether somebody's innocent. It's not that huge of a difference where you have to worry about, well, you think they're 100% innocent. That's not what you're being tasked with. You just have to decide, where is it proven you beyond a reasonable doubt that they're guilty? And there is no way that took place in this last case. And there is no way that took place on all these cases where people were innocent. Because these people were innocent, so we know they weren't guilty. So there is no way they were proven beyond a reasonable doubt. All these exonerees, all these people who let out after years and years in jail, finally let back home for their families, suffering for an unintelligent, uneducated, inexperienced jury who, who didn't understand what their task was, and they found these people guilty. And I've read a lot of articles where these jurors feel feel uh, ashamed about finding people guilty. And I don't know the instances, so I, I don't want to get into it. But if it has to do with not doing their job and not going by reasonable doubt and not going by the facts, then they should feel ashamed. And they should feel guilty about that. They robbed somebody of their livelihood. They didn't go by the facts of the case and they robbed somebody of their livelihood. They took away years from their life. And that's inexcusable. And when you go back there and you don't really have a good basis of what you're supposed to do and you hear a Pinkerton charge and you don't even know what that means and you're hit with a charge from the court of 80 pages, 90 pages, and you got to go down this whole chart. These are average citizens, and you're handing them an 80-page, 90-page document, and you're telling them, all right, find guilty based on this wording. You couldn't make it more confusing. And I have no doubt that some people are probably saying guilty when they don't even know what they're supposed to find guilty of. They're just so confused by what's in front of them. Because there's no way you could get guilty verdicts if you're going by reasonable doubt and you're going by evidence. You're just going by maybe pressures, maybe being outnumbered, maybe by the ju- the judge's reactions. But you're not going by the facts. You're not going by the evidence. When you have innocent people on trial and you're finding them guilty, the jurors are doing something wrong. The whole system's doing something wrong. But I don't have the power to change the system. I only have somewhat of the power to help educate the public. So I try to focus on that. Unfortunately, on a higher level, I I have no control of that. 
And I know there's a lot of good organizations and a lot of good people out there trying to make a change, but it takes years, decades. People are going to keep being found guilty that are innocent. So I want to try to do my part and expand some horizons and open up some minds on this level to what is really taking place and give a little bit of a common sense education to these things. I could go into the boring book sense of it. I studied it. I went and got my certificate in paralegal studies for it. And the truth is, it's a lot of boring material. And what was really sobering is when I had a nice smack in the face on how there is a big difference between what's written in that book and what plays out in the courtroom. There's a big difference in that. And the book, it sounds great. If it played out like it did in the book, and I said this in another episode, we wouldn't be having these conversations. Innocent people wouldn't be being found guilty. But it obviously doesn't play out that way. There's a lot of errors in it. There's a lot of problems with it. And it has to be fixed on so many different levels. So I'm going to try to focus on the level I could fix. And that's appealing to the general public. And I try to focus it in my focus on it in my professional capacity by helping and devoting myself and my firm to helping their defense team, to helping their lawyers, to helping the clients. And that's actually a lot of, a big part of it. You got to keep the clients in the loop. You got to all give ideas to build the best defense possible and to account for all these things that you're going to go up against, such as experts, such as lying informants, such as any of the evidence, the discoveries I explained, which you have to jump into from day one, and you got to keep the client abreast of what's going on from day one, from transcripts, from audios. All these things make up the case. And each and every piece of it has to get dissected and analyzed over and over again. That's the only shot you have. So I'm trying to do it on two fronts. On one front in a professional way where I deal with my clients and I deal with my company where we're helping the defense team. And on the other end, which I started the podcast for, to try to appeal to the public, to try to break things down commonsensically to go into them, to analyze them, and really work at it that angle. And that's what we're trying to accomplish here. And that's it for today. I'm happy that um, we're growing in subscribers. That tells me I'm doing something right. And I'll speak to you soon.